Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. This week, we'll be talking a little bit about ourselves, our backgrounds, and about our careers as physicists. Over the years, we've done a large number of episodes about employment because it's such a big issue for the visually impaired community in which unemployment is a huge, huge issue. And we've talked about how to get a job and how to interview. And we've spoken with many people with a wide variety of careers. And over the years, some of our listeners have suggested that we talk about Pete's experiences as a blind physicist, and while we were at it, mine as a female physicist. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip is, if somebody tells you that you can't do something just because you're blind or female or have some other characteristic you can't change, figure out a way to do what it is that you want to do. Because oftentimes when people tell you something is impossible, they're wrong. And that's one of the reasons in this show we share many stories of success and people who have had rewarding careers in various professions that you might not think a visually impaired person might have. And the hope is that somebody who wants to do something that they've been discouraged from doing will be encouraged to try harder when they hear that somebody else managed to get it done. And will also receive some pointers about how to succeed themselves. Basically, our message is, where there's a will, there's a way. Usually at this point in the show, we introduce our guests. Well, today we are the guests. So we're going to tell you a little bit more about ourselves in ways that relate to today's topic. So Pete, you've mentioned to our listeners over the years that you're blind, but can you describe how your vision loss progressed, especially as you went through your education? So I was born in the early 50s with congenital glaucoma, which at the time they didn't think could happen in young people, so it went untreated for a while. Fortunately, I did have some amount of vision until just before going to graduate school after getting my bachelor's in physics. I could hold a book several inches from my nose and read it. I didn't have need for a cane at the time, but also at that time, they didn't mainstream people who couldn't see well. And since I couldn't see the blackboard, even from the front row of the classroom, I actually went to a school for the blind until I was in fifth grade. After that, I transferred to a public school and made use of a monocular to see the blackboard and just look close at things. And as a student at the school for the blind, you learned two very important skills, reading braille and touch typing at an age much younger than any of your peers in the regular public schools. It was great at the time. They taught all of the blind students to touch type on a typewriter because they figured that was the way they could communicate with sighted people. And at the time, they taught me Braille, but I didn't realize what a gift that was and how I would need it later on in life, although at the time I didn't really appreciate it. 
So what kind of adaptive tools did you use as you went through your education? Well, as I mentioned, I mostly used a monocular. I would always talk with the teachers about um, the fact that I had to look at things closely. And sometimes if they wrote test questions on a board, I would ask them to give me a printed copy. But there really weren't many accommodations that I needed in school. As I said, I didn't walk around with a cane. And, you know, I almost didn't consider myself blind, even though I would often walk into things. And (laughs) I probably should have been using a cane, especially to cross streets. But then that summer after college and before graduate school, one more operation left you with essentially no vision, and all of a sudden your tools needed to change big time. And that's when I relearned some of my blindness skills and learned some new ones. I had a fellowship to go to graduate school in physics in the fall, and I decided the summer was my opportunity to relearn Braille, learn higher-level Braille mathematics, which was not an easy task. And I also learned to use a cane at that time so I could get around on my own in graduate school without seeing. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. This week's focus topic is what it was like for us as one blind and one female physicist through our education and our long careers in corporate research. We talked somewhat about how your vision impacted your education. Can you describe for everybody what your education entailed? So after high school, I went to college and got a BS in physics, but there isn't much you can do with a BS in physics, so the obvious thing was to go to graduate school. And so I applied to graduate school, got a fellowship to the University of Virginia, and went there where I eventually got my PhD in engineering physics. And how about you? Well, similarly to you, I did my undergraduate degree in astrophysics, but there's even less you can do with a bachelor's degree in astrophysics than in physics. So I got a Fannie and John Hertz Foundation Fellowship and took that to the University of Chicago, where I got my PhD in physics. And then I got a National Science Foundation Fellowship and did a postdoctoral fellowship at the Max Planck Institute for Solid State Physics in Stuttgart, Germany, before coming back to the United States and starting my job at Xerox. And fortunately, you did come back, so we were able to meet. Well, yeah, we met about a week after I got back to the United States, so that worked out pretty well. What prompted you to go into physics in the first place? I always liked mathematics and science when I was a kid, and so going to school in physics and graduate school was really of interest to me, and that was a lot of fun. And when I got there, as I said, I had just recently relearned some of my blindness skills, Braille and all. And one thing I learned about, and we talked about several times in previous episodes, is that, you know, particularly if you're blind, you have to be a little bit more structured and organized. So before I went to graduate school in the fall, I actually met with many of my professors to figure out what textbook they were going to use. And this way, I could give the textbooks to Recording for the Blind, which is now Learning Ally, to record these books in audio format so I could use them as part of my classes. And I also talked with each professor about the fact that, you know, when you write on the board, you should try to verbalize what you write on the board. Of course, that didn't always work, but, you know, you try what you can. 
and I talked to some of my colleagues, other graduate students, about sharing notes because it was difficult for me to take notes. So being structured and well-organized, I think, was a big part of being successful in graduate school. We've referred to ourselves many times in this show as physicists, but physics is a very big field. What types of physics did you focus on in college and graduate school and your career? I actually knew that I didn't want to do very hardcore esoteric physics. I was really interested in how my knowledge of physics could impact something good in the world. And so I was really interested in applied physics programs. And I got involved in a PhD program at the University of Virginia in engineering physics. So half of my courses were in physics, like quantum mechanics, classical mechanics, thermodynamics, and mathematics. And half of them were in the engineering school, so some mechanics. And in particular, in the engineering school, I took a lot of fluid mechanics courses. And funny enough, but... That background was the key to getting my job at Xerox after I graduated. And your background was slightly different, right? It was. When I was an undergraduate, I actually majored in astrophysics, which is the physics of the universe, cosmology, stellar evolution. And that was interesting. But once I got to graduate school, I also developed an interest in more applied branches of physics. And I ultimately did my dissertation for my PhD and my postdoctoral fellowship on the electronic properties of semiconductors. And it turned out that as a student, I would go to conferences where I would meet all of these researchers in industry and academia. And there was a large research group at Xerox working on semiconductors, mostly because you can make photoreceptors out of them. So when it came time to look for a job, that was one of my top choices. So I applied to Xerox for a job. I wound up at Xerox a little bit more accidentally. Since I enjoyed most areas of physics, I really didn't care whether I was doing laser physics or aerodynamics or working on jets or rockets. But I knew that Xerox was in Rochester near the Eastman School of Music, and I had a passion for music, and I figured, you know, I could make use of that and take courses at Eastman and all. So I didn't even know Xerox hired physicists, but I applied there, and it turned out that my fluid mechanics background was ideal for what they were looking for. They were just starting to work on the first inkjet printers in the late 70s. In your education through the end of undergraduate school, you had some visual problems, but there were days when you could see well enough to get your work done. But once you got into graduate school, things were substantially different and you had a major visual impairment. What kinds of challenges did you have to overcome in graduate school and what kind of reactions did you get from your fellow students and the faculty? Most people I ran into were very supportive. Of course, I wasn't afraid to have the conversation with professors ahead of time, to talk with colleagues about what I needed and how they could help me. And so mostly things worked out pretty well. Although initially, I couldn't see anything when I went to graduate school for the first semester or so, and some of my books from Recording for the Blind came a little late, my colleagues actually decided that since I didn't have the audio recordings, they would read my quantum mechanics books to me and other physics books. And so they were very nice about that. 
my vision eventually cleared up enough so that I could use a CCTV, which I purchased and put in my office. And the professors were kind enough to let me take the tests in my office and trust that I wasn't going to cheat or take extra time or, you know, do something else nefarious. So people were very supportive. Professors handed me their notes. So I would have those as an adjunct to not seeing everything that was on the board. And actually, one skill I picked up was the ability to listen well. So I never actually took notes in many of my classes because it was difficult. But I mostly listened to what the professors were talking about, what were the high points of what they wanted you to learn, and then I'd go back to the textbooks and dig out the details. And that's really how I got through graduate school. A number of the people we've interviewed who've managed to succeed in one profession or another have run into the obstacle of other people saying, you can't do that, you're blind. Did you ever run into any of that? The only time I came close to that was when I was working on my research for my PhD, and I really wanted to be an experimental physicist, to work in the lab with screwdrivers and nuts and bolts and do fun stuff like that. And at one point, my advisor, who was very supportive, sat me down and said, you know, Pete, you're a very capable person. You're very bright. I know anything you put your mind to, you can do. And I just want you to realize, if you want to be an experimentalist, it's going to be a little bit more of an uphill battle. It may take you a little bit longer, and there might be some challenges. But, you know, the choice is yours, and I'll support you either way. And I went home and thought about that, but I'm kind of a pragmatic person, and there are many ways I can find enjoyment. You know, I didn't need to be an experimentalist, so I I found myself a project where I could do some computer modeling, which is just another way of doing experiments, actually. You do experiments on a computer. So that's what I did, and I got out of graduate school in a little bit over four years. And how about yourself? You were quite unusual yourself being one of the few women in a physics program. There certainly weren't many in my physics class. Oh, there weren't many in mine either. I used to say I was part of a small minority until I realized I was the entire minority. But, you know, really, the biggest challenge that I had to overcome, I would say, was peer pressure. And not just peers, you know, the same parents who assured me that I could do anything I set my mind to were the same parents who told me, girls don't go into science. And so that kind of attitude... Um, was really pervasive in the 50s and 60s as I was growing up and getting into high school. And even in high school in physics, there were 400 kids in my graduating class. I think there were about 100 boys taking physics and me and Barbara. And she went into business. She did not become a scientist. So there was an awful lot of peer pressure. But on the other hand, I was very lucky to have a few significant individuals who believed in me, who really didn't care that I was a girl. The first two were my calculus and physics teachers in high school. One also coached me in the math team. The other coached me in the debate team. And they were very supportive, and they didn't care if I was a girl. They just encouraged me to pursue my interests. And when I got into undergraduate school, my undergraduate advisor took me aside one day. He said, you know, look, my wife has been a technician her whole life. You really need to continue your education, go to graduate school. You don't want to be somebody's technician just because you're a woman. 
And then once I got out of college and went to graduate school, my thesis advisor also was a big supporter and gave me great advice and encouragement all the way through my graduate education and for many years afterwards. Having those few special people who really didn't care and said, I know what the world's like out there. I know you're facing objections. Go for it anyway. That just made a huge, huge difference to me. You know, it's so important to have those people who are willing to support you, stand up for you, show you the right way, and who will give you some good ideas. And if you don't work for those people or aren't around people like that, seek them out. I always did. When I got to Xerox, I think one of the things that helped me climb the ladder of success was identifying people who were actually good at what they do, were willing to share their time, and also willing to give good advice. And I immediately hooked up with several people who were kind of top-notch in their field. And early in my career, I kind of latched onto them and followed them, followed their examples. I mean, later on, we kind of split and did our own things, although we worked together for many years. And once you're on your feet, it's a little bit easier to be successful on your own. I think another thing that's important in any career, as it was for us as physicists, is to ask for what you need. And in your case, you often had to ask for specialized equipment in order to do your job. Well, and that was one of the real advantages of working at a major corporation. Xerox was always very supportive of any adaptive needs for me. And they also didn't worry about the money to buy any adaptive equipment that I needed. So if I needed a new CCTV or an 80-cell Braille display or a speech synthesizer, reading machine, all I had to do was ask for it and it was easily obtained. You know, they, I went through a number of Braille displays at Xerox, as a matter of fact. Well, and you didn't have to feel like you were the only person asking for adaptive equipment. Every time I moved into a new laboratory, the first thing I asked for was a step stool because everybody else, being male, was taller than me and I couldn't reach the equipment. Well, in fact, you ran into more serious challenges when, because of all the computer work you were doing, you ran into having problems with your wrist, carpal tunnel syndrome, and Xerox was supportive then, right? Oh, I did, and they were, and they didn't bat an eye. They bought me a variety of mice, ergonomic staplers. They bought me Dragon Naturally Speaking back when it was very expensive and frankly, not very good, but I needed it because my hands were such a problem and I wasn't the only one. I mean, it was a small percentage, but there were a number of cases of people who got special chairs, special keyboards, whatever anybody needed. And And I guess one of the messages there is if you need anything in order to do your job, ask for it. And these days, companies are obligated to provide it. Xerox was a little bit ahead of the curve on that one. Well, and I think that's the biggest thing. You have to be proactive, know what your own needs are, and be able to communicate to others what those needs are in a clear manner. I mean, it wasn't like Xerox would come up to me and say, hey, you need a Braille display, or you need a reading machine, or so-and-so. Or in your case, you know, they didn't know what you needed to help your dexterity problem. And they were even willing to modify your job at times. You transferred groups to have a position that required less computational work when you were doing a lot of computer modeling, right? 
That's true, but that also required an awful lot of being proactive on my part to make it happen. Because when I went out for surgery and I was going to come back in, I didn't want to ruin my hands again. And so I pushed pretty hard, but the head of the group into which I transferred was delighted to have me and came up with an assignment that wasn't going to aggravate my wrist problems. And everybody wound up happy and, and I was able to contribute in a different way. So tell people a little bit about what you and I did at Xerox and why we found it so much fun to work there as practicing physicists. I mentioned I started in astrophysics and switched into semiconductor physics and then went to Xerox where I was working in a variety of fields. And my observation over the years is that once you get your basic training, there are an awful lot of interesting problems and you don't really need to stick with the same micro field that you started with. And I think one of the things that made at least my job fun, and I think I've heard you say the same thing, was the ability to change within the same company from subfield to subfield to subfield. So I started out, I was actually doing automated testing of thin film devices. And then I went into doing physical modeling of the xerographic printer process and got involved in developing specifications for how good the images had to be. And then spent a number of years exploring the limits of the human visual system because we needed to know how bad the prints could get before anybody could tell they weren't perfect and how much worse they could get before anybody cared. And for the last product program that I was working with, those two were really close together, but it was important to know just how much latitude the engineers would have in developing the products. And so it was this huge variety of projects, and I spent five years in management, and there were always new challenges. And the other thing that made it fun was that there were great people to work with. How about you? Oh, I took the job at Xerox because when I interviewed, it was Donut Day, and I figured these are definitely fun people to work with. But actually, one question visually impaired people often ask is about when you apply for a job, do you mention it on your resume? And I never did. I wanted people to hire me because of my qualifications. I sent out resumes. If they called me up for an interview, that's the time I would tell them, when you meet me at the airport, I'm the guy with the cane. And that's how that worked out. After I got to Xerox, I was kind of curious about what their reaction was and how they felt hiring a blind individual. And so I asked my manager some months after hiring about that. And his answer was that, you know, I didn't really think about it, he said. I figured if you were smart enough and ambitious enough to get a PhD being blind, that you were going to do okay at Xerox. So I guess it really wasn't a big issue after all. But actually, when I got to Xerox, I did very similar work to you. I started out doing computer modeling of inkjet systems instead of xerographic systems. So how the ink got squirted out of the nozzle, what happened when it landed on the paper, how did the ink in the nozzles dry out, where did the heat go, et cetera, et cetera. And I did various kinds of models for many years, and I eventually got into image processing. And this was the area of making sure that the prints looked good. And towards the latter part of my career, I was actually the manager of the group in research that was responsible for developing the color 
and image processing algorithms that went into our inkjet printer drivers and was in charge of setting the print quality specifications for our inkjet products. And it was really kind of funny that here we had a blind man in charge of all these print-related things. How did that work out? Well, I tell people it actually worked as an advantage because it made everybody on my team verbalize what they were seeing in these prints. And everybody sees prints a little bit differently in terms of some defect here or color mismatch over there because it's very subjective. And by verbalizing this, it really made them think and be a little bit more quantitative about their assessments. And it really fostered very good communication in the team. We had an outstanding team and had a lot of fun, and I think it really worked well. So the bottom line is, if you're interested in pursuing physics, you can have a great career doing it. Sure was fun for us. Absolutely. And it pays okay. Now for this week's final item, how to get more information about obtaining and holding a good job. Well, of course, we're going to send you to our archive. This is our 401st episode. So our archive contains this show plus 400 more. And of those, many of them are about employment, as we mentioned before. And in particular, we would like to steer you to one episode in which we talked about tips for finding a job, including promoting yourself in social media and kind of the modern world. One show about AFB's Career Connect, which has recently been taken over by APH. And another show with the author of a book talking all about employment considerations for the blind. And we'll put links to all of those shows in our show notes because it's kind of unwieldy for people to grab that from the audio. But we hope that people make use of those show notes because we always take the time to take all of the contact information, URLs, and references that we mention in the audio portion of the show to have them in the show notes so they're easy to find in one place anytime you want. So in addition to the general shows, we also have interviewed a large number of individuals with a variety of careers, many of which you might find a surprise or at least a challenge for somebody with a visual impairment. Such as? We've talked to people in many branches of science. We've talked to musicians, music producers, judges, physicians, auto mechanics, pharmacists. If you can think of a career that we haven't done, please shoot us a note at hosts at eyesonsuccess.net, and we'll try to find somebody to talk to about that. But use the search tool first to look because odds are pretty good we've covered that career. Right. And there are so many of those episodes on various types of employment and professions that visually impaired people we've interviewed have had that the best way to find those is through the search tool, as Nancy says. Just put the word employment or job into our search field, and many of those shows will come up. You can listen to the audio and check out the show notes and get a summary of each of them when the search results come up. That's it for show number 1836. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking with Michael Somson, a blinded veteran who has had 
several of these jobs as well as pastimes that you might find surprising. He's been a lawyer, a judge, a professor, a competitive triathlete, and much more. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.eyesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes and follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Success or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.